Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of domestic abuse, miscarriage, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the 1920s, Chicago buzzed with hope and promise. World War I had recently come to an end, and people were ready to enjoy themselves. Many wanted to have a few drinks to loosen up and celebrate, but prohibition was in effect. Booze was illegal and hard to come by. That didn't stop everyone, though. With a city of untapped kegs and an untapped market, organized crime stepped in to fill the gaps. Mobsters did whatever it took to get liquor into glasses and cash into their pockets. In no time, speakeasies were aglow across the city. Just one whisper and you were in. As time went on, gangs fought with each other to dominate the market. They used violence to take down enemy syndicates and then bribed politicians and law enforcement to look the other way. Only the most ruthless remained standing. There was no denying it, crime ran Chicago, and gangsters like Sam Giancana were at the forefront. The young man was cut out for a life on the edge. He had it good, perhaps too good. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the murder of infamous Chicago mobster Sam Giancana. Today, we'll follow Sam as he rises through the ranks to become a leading crime boss in Chicago. Next time, we'll cover the gangster's sudden death and how the U.S. government may have been involved. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. From the time he was a boy, Salvatore Sam Giancana had to fight to survive. Born in 1908 to Italian immigrants, Sam grew up in an area of West Chicago known as the Patch, or Little Italy. Conditions were harsh. Tenement houses were crowded, and families often had to go without adequate electricity, heat, and water. Garbage spilled into the streets, contributing to the spread of disease. To make matters worse, when Sam was nearly two years old, his mother suffered a miscarriage, one that took her life. 
The young boy was heartbroken. He became quiet and glum. His father, Antonio, however, remarried within the year. Sam's new family wasn't a happy one. After the wedding, relatives may have noticed his father's mood darken considerably. According to the book Double Cross, the explosive inside story of the mobster who controlled America, written by Sam's family in 1992, young Sam fell asleep listening to his father's, quote, violent outbursts and his stepmother's piteous cries. Worse still, Sam's father abused him as well. When he was just six years old, his dad chained him to a tree outside their house and whipped him with a razor strap. This type of abuse was a feature of Sam's childhood, and it wasn't just traumatizing, it was a bad influence on his personality. By the time he was 10 years old, Sam was hostile toward authority figures. He was eventually expelled from school. His father sent him to the St. Charles Reformatory for Boys in Chicago to learn discipline and good behavior. Instead, Sam escaped. He only spent six months at St. Charles before making his getaway. After that, he was homeless. He knew he couldn't return to his father, not after the stunt he just pulled. But he still needed to eat, so every once in a while, Sam would sneak into his childhood home at night, hoping to get his hands on something. On a few occasions, his father caught him and chased him out of the house. He screamed he didn't want anything to do with Sam. He may have even threatened the boy's life if he returned. Sam had to fend for himself on the streets. He found refuge in abandoned cars or under back porches and stole food from vendors. It's possible that he grew to resent his father even more during this time. One day he thought he would show the old man what he was capable of. But for now, Sam was entirely alone. He remained that way for two long years from the age of around 10 to 12. That all changed around 1920 when he found a new family, a street gang known as the 42s. The 42s were a group of neighborhood boys who grew up facing the same cruel realities as Sam. With nothing to lose, the gang turned to criminal activities, starting with petty theft. They started out selling stolen clothes around the patch, then hawking them on street corners. They eventually graduated to stealing unattended cars, selling them outright, or stripping them for parts. Car theft became their signature crime, and whipping corners, running through the streets and alleys at lightning speed, became their signature escape. Sam was the best at whipping corners. After he joined the group, he practiced hard, setting up old barrels around alleyways to jump over. The moves earned him respect and the role of designated getaway driver. It was an honor. It meant he was fast. Not bad for a kid. Sam may have felt he was sticking it to his father at first, living by his own rules and answering to no one, but eventually he and the boys wanted to grow up a little. They wanted to be taken seriously like more notorious murderous mobsters such as Al Capone. They wanted the money, power, and respect that came with being a real tough guy. So when stealing cars got old, they turned to bank robberies, street bombings, and murder. 
sometimes as contractors, other times just for fun. And it paid off. The 42s quickly got rich. Young Sam must have felt on top of the world. Nothing could get in his way. Not even the police, who knew him well by this point. Put your hands up, Gene Connor. Listen, officer. We all know you're just looking for a payout. That depends on the price. I've got 500 on me right now. You're free to go. The 42s often bribed officers, and even judges, to look the other way. But though the gang had upped their game, they still weren't real mobsters. Not like Capone and his men, who were known officially as the Outfit. In the early 1920s, Sam got the chance to prove he could do more. At the time, one of the most infamous criminal leaders was a Chicago politician named Joe Esposito, nicknamed Diamond Joe for his precious cufflinks. Diamond Joe was one of the first Italian-Americans elected to his position, and he used his power to protect Little Italy's bootleggers. He knew about some of the smaller street gangs, like the 42s, and found ways to assert dominance over them. Instead of killing them off, he took a different approach. He offered them jobs. In 1923, he needed someone with connections in the patch. That's how Diamond Joe met Sam Giancana. So, you're the kid I keep hearing about. The one who whips corners like a wildebeest? Sam Giancana, sir. Pleasure to meet you. Likewise. I'll get right to it. I'm impressed with you, Sam. My men say you're quick. They can't stop talking about you outrunning coppers and peeling down back alleys. There's no one as quick as me out there. That's why I want you working for me. I'm in the whiskey game now, and I need a delivery boy. You up for it? I'd be honored. Sam was thrilled. He was around 15 years old and may have idolized Diamond Joe for a long time. Plus, he knew running deliveries was more than just grunt work. He'd get to see the action firsthand. That was how Sam learned the mob's merciless ways. He noted down every intimidation tactic and even witnessed a few hits. He also learned about the Mafia's calling card, shooting victims in the back of the head or straight in the mouth. Sam realized something important. Mob killings were calculated. There was no fear, no emotion at all. This was how mob bosses acted. This was how Sam would have to be. If anyone pushed him around, he pushed back. Only real, powerful men could tell him what to do. And it wasn't just Diamond Joe that took an interest in him. Around this time, Sam caught the attention of another big-time mobster. I'm honored to meet you, Mr. Capone. Likewise, Sam. Tell me, how are things working out with my old friend, Diamond? I can't complain. I'm a hard worker, and he gave me work. <laughs> I hear you're not just a hard worker. You're the best. And I only work with the best. 
That's why I wanted to meet with you today. I'm looking for a new getaway driver. I've only got a few. They need to be smart, observant, and fast. It's hard to find someone who's all three. So, what do you say? I'd be honored. Sam felt on top of the world. Nothing could break his spirits. Not even an arrest in September of 1925. Sam was 17 years old when he was convicted for auto theft and sentenced to 30 days in the Juliet State Penitentiary. More than likely, the new mark on his rap sheet only bolstered his confidence. It seems that every brush with the law and death was Sam's way of sticking it to his abusive father, as if he was out to prove how much tougher he was than his old man. Just like the kingpins who employed him, Sam wanted to gain control of his own domain, and he wasn't afraid to use violence to get what he thought he deserved. Coming up, Sam faces his oldest enemy. Now, back to the story. In 1925, 17-year-old Sam Giancana was released from prison. Before returning to his life as a street thug, he felt he needed to achieve a milestone, something to mark his transformation from wild child to real deal. So he made his way to his father's house. By now, Sam's father, Antonio, knew his son was a full-on criminal. He wanted to distance himself, his wife, and his other children from the bad seed as much as possible. But Sam had different plans. Sam? What do you think you're doing here? Get out of my house! No. I'm not going to say it again, Sam. Get out! You took so much away from me. <laughs> you need to take a good, hard look at yourself, son. You can't beat up on me anymore, old man. Antonio lunged at Sam, but Sam blocked him, then swiftly rammed his head into the wall. As Antonio tried to regain his senses, Sam grabbed a butcher knife. Antonio noticed the blade in his son's hand, and Sam lifted the knife to his throat. The two men stood face to face, frozen. With each passing second, Sam saw the fear grow in Antonio's eyes. Finally, he was on top. This is my house now, and I'll come and go as I please. Do you hear me? What happened to my boy? I said, do you hear me? Fine. But while Sam might have been coming into his own, the tide was turning for the rest of the 42s. Reporters were concerned with the rising violence, so they wrote about every little robbery and scuffle as a way to catch the police's attention. And it worked. Warehouses brimming with stolen goods were busted in raids. In March of 1925, a two-mile car chase broke out between two 42s and the police. The 42s ended up behind bars. But the cops didn't stop there. Two days later, 17 more gang members were arrested for attempted robbery. 
Sam, however, remained above it all, untouched. He was arrested during a clothing store heist, but Diamond Joe posted bail. He was back to shipping carloads of sugar and bourbon a few days later. Sam continued working, believing he'd get off scot-free. This attitude was perhaps what led him to his first truly serious encounter with the law. In September 1926, 18-year-old Sam was the getaway driver in a robbery. He and two other 42s pulled up outside a store. The two others loaded their guns, then went inside. Moments later, Sam heard gunshots that he knew came from his partners. But then he heard another series of shots firing back. Sam sped off. The gangsters scrambled out of the store and ran down an alley. They thought they'd gotten away with it, but after leaving the store, the gangsters robbed a cab driver named Alex Burba, who acted as a witness. The next day, police showed up at Sam's house with an arrest warrant. He was charged with robbery and attempted murder. Once again, Diamond Joe posted Sam's bond. But the shopkeeper died in the hospital from the wounds sustained during the attempted robbery. Now, Sam would face a murder trial in April of the following year. It was too big a crime to bribe his way out of. He started to panic. He couldn't imagine going back to jail. He belonged on the streets, working. If that wasn't bad enough, the thought of being sent to the electric chair also haunted him. He racked his brain for a solution. Then, something dawned on him. Hello? Alex Berba. Retract your statement, or you'll be sorry. Excuse me? I mean it. I'll find you. And I'll kill you. Even after this disturbing call, Alex wasn't shaken. So Sam and a couple of other 42s paid him a visit at the soda shop where he worked his second job. Hello, Alex. Do I know you? I told you I would find you. Listen, do what you gotta do. I'm not backing down. Don't do this to yourself. I think you fellas should go. Sometime later, Sam tried to change Alex's mind one more time, this time bribing him with $2,000. But Alex held firm. Finally, Sam saw no other option. On the evening of April 20th, 1927, just a few days before the trial, a 42s member walked into the soda shop and shot Alex dead. The only witness in the murder case was gone. There was a brief investigation, but for whatever reason, authorities didn't look into the gang. Ten days later, the murder trial was dropped for lack of evidence. The ordeal bolstered Sam's street reputation. In the fall of 1927, he was named the new leader of the 42s. The outfit also saw new potential in Sam. In March 1928, he got a call from one of Capone's men. There's someone 
probably need to get out of our way. I can help with that. What's their name? Joe Esposito. No problem. Great. All you have to do is make the call. Write down this number. If Sam second-guessed his decision at any point, he didn't show it. It didn't matter to him that Diamond Joe was the one who gave him his start in the big leagues. The outfit ran everything, not just the streets, the whole city. Capone's word trumped all. Soon after he got the order, Sam stepped into a dirty phone booth. Get out of town or die. Diamond Joe ignored the warning. Not long afterwards, he was killed in a drive-by shooting. Sam felt no remorse. Especially since he knew that making the call had been a test. He wasn't asked to pull the trigger. He wasn't even asked to drive. Al Capone just wanted to know if Sam could be trusted. For the next few years, Capone and his men relied on Sam for important jobs. In the late 1930s, Sam left the 42s for good and officially joined the outfit. Then things started to change. In 1931, Capone was jailed, which affected the mob leadership. Two years later, prohibition neared its end. The remainder of the decade saw Sam's career and family grow. He bootlegged whiskey and he married a woman named Angeline. In 1935, the couple had their first daughter. In 1939, he got four years behind bars for his whiskey operation, but in the early 40s, he was released and got right back to it. Sam's excitement to rejoin the mob seemed to spur a new ambition, to take over Chicago's illegal lottery gambling. Other big-time gangsters were involved with the system, so naturally, he wanted in. He also wanted to be the best and stopped at nothing to get there. He and his accomplices used beatings, kidnappings, and murder to gain control of the numbers racket and earn the mob millions. A decade later, Sam had more power than he'd ever imagined. By the early 1950s, he was one of the leading crime bosses in Chicago. It came as no surprise when two outfit leaders, who were forced to step down due to an IRS investigation, named Sam as their successor in 1955. Under his control, the outfit's power spread to the entire nation. It wasn't just the mob who took notice of Sam's influence. He allegedly caught the attention of the U.S. Senate, as well as Joseph Kennedy, father to Robert and John, a.k.a. Jack Kennedy. But these prominent figureheads didn't want to take Sam down. They wanted in. Coming up, Sam gets tangled up with the U.S. government. And now... Back to our story. 
In the late 1950s, Sam Giancana sat atop a throne. He'd helped the mob rake in millions of illegal lottery dollars and officially took control of the Chicago outfit. By now, he'd set up rackets in Hollywood and Las Vegas. He'd also become known for his flashy fashion, as well as his nights on the town with popular starlets. There's a lot of speculation about Sam's life from here on out. Much of the mystery stems from his alleged ties to top government officials. We'll tell the story as we understand it. According to the book Double Cross, the explosive inside story of the mobster who controlled America, it's rumored that when Prohibition ended, Joe Kennedy, father to John and Robert Kennedy, made a deal with a bootlegger. It allowed him to hold on to three of the top alcohol distributors in the country. This would mean Sam and Joe ran in the same circles. As Sam's power and influence grew, everyone wanted a piece of it, including Joe. In the spring of 1956, Joe was allegedly in trouble with a New York gangster, Frank Costello. He needed help, and he thought Sam was the man to go to. He probably knew that Sam's favor wasn't easy to come by, but Sam also knew that the Kennedy patriarch held influence over Chicago's mayor. As legend tells it, Joe pulled some strings to request FaceTime with Sam, and Sam agreed. So, Mr. Kennedy, what can I do for you? Well, I'm in a bit of a situation with Frank Costello. I know the two of you are friends. Let me stop you right there. Do you owe Frank? What? No, not at all. I just, I need him off my back. He wants me to be the front man on some property, but I'm in a compromising position because of Jack's career. Why don't you just tell him that? Sam. Frank has a contract on me. He'll kill me. I see. And why should I help you? My son is going to be president. If you do me this favor, I can make sure the mob is protected in ways it never has been. You have my word. Later that night, Sam made a call to New York. By the end of his conversation, Frank Costello's hit on Joe Kennedy was off. Unfortunately for Sam, Joe's word wasn't as strong as it seemed. Not long after that conversation, Joe's son, Robert Kennedy, set his own political sights on Chicago. Robert wanted to investigate labor unions. He suspected corruption and gang activity lay in their underbellies, and he wasn't wrong. The mob had infiltrated the city's unions. And Robert wasn't alone in his suspicions. By this point, the United States Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, more commonly known as the McClellan Committee, had been formed. Even though JFK was counting on the labor vote for the 1960 presidential election, Robert urged him to address the corruption. In other words, Joe's promise to Sam meant nothing. God, this is ludicrous! I kept up my end of the bargain, but Joe gets to do whatever he wants? He's scum. All these big-time politicians are no better than us. They're all crooks. And now we've got William Romer on our tails. Who? You don't know? Romer's a fed. He's snooping around, trying to get dirt, catch rats. 
He's been at all our spots, restaurants, barbershops, chatting with our guys like he knows them. Just waiting for someone to slip. Some say he's planted bugs. I... I got to get out of here. Once Sam realized the FBI could take him down at any moment, he went into hiding. He evaded the law for two years. But by 1959, he had to reemerge. For one, Fidel Castro shut down all the gambling and sex work operations in Cuba, causing the mob to lose huge profits. Sam needed to step in. Secondly, Sam's daughter was getting married and he wasn't going to miss it. He decided not to live in fear any longer. The time had come to face his enemies, which is exactly what he did on June 8, 1959, when he sat down with Robert Kennedy. At the time, Robert served as counsel to the U.S. Senate. Sam, is it true that when you disagree with someone, you shove them into a trunk? (laughs) I'm not going to answer that. Very well. Is there anything you can tell me about your line of work? I plead the fifth. Sam was essentially playing a game. Maybe he was keeping his enemies close, but it's also possible that Robert wasn't trying to catch Sam. He may have been testing him for a different purpose. To this day, many people speculate that the mob influenced the 1960 presidential election. They believe ballot stuffing occurred in Chicago. Sam claimed later on that he helped rig votes in Cook County, Illinois, a district that played a huge role in JFK's victory. If this is true, Sam's actions may have caused the McClellan Committee, whom Robert counseled, to back off the mob. The outfit and the administration would have realized they had a common enemy, Fidel Castro. The U.S. government saw Castro's regime as a threat to their national security. So the mafia and the CIA joined forces to assassinate the Cuban president. The plot was possibly coordinated through messages that JFK sent to Sam via a woman they were both believed to be dating. Agent Robert Mayhew recruited Sam, along with Santo Traficante Jr., the syndicate chief in Florida, and Johnny Rosselli, an outfit member, to kill Castro. The agency was willing to pay the mafia $150,000 to have the Cuban ruler killed. I'm not sure I agree that poison is the ideal method. It requires close contact. The way I see it, Your agency isn't paying $150,000 for a bunch of suckers to try their best. You came to us because we're professionals. Fine, but if this goes south, it's on you. According to the book Mafia Boss Sam Giancana, The Rise and Fall of a Chicago Mobster by Susan McNichol, a CIA operative met with the gangsters on March 12, 1961. There he handed off a bottle of pills, as well as a $10,000 down payment. Most likely, Sam and his accomplices began planning their journey to Cuba and eventual attack. But just over a month later, the mission was called off after the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. 
From there, it's rumored that Sam's ties to the Kennedys soured once more. Some have even speculated that the Mafia was involved in JFK's 1963 assassination. The theory goes that the assassination was Sam's way of enacting revenge on Robert's original fight against organized crime. Regardless of the true story behind the president's death, it marked the return of Sam's legal troubles. On June 1st, 1965, he was put on trial for refusing to testify before a Chicago grand jury about organized crime and gang activity in the city. He was charged with contempt and sentenced to a year behind bars. After his release, he fled to Mexico in an attempt to avoid further questioning. He stepped down as leader of the outfit and lived in exile for several years. But he couldn't stay in hiding forever. The U.S. government wanted Sam to testify before a Senate committee about the Castro assassination plot. On July 19, 1974, Mexican authorities arrested him and sent him back to the States. Until the Senate hearing, which wouldn't take place until the following June, undercover officers guarded his house in Oak Park, Illinois. They made sure he didn't run again. It seems like that young boy, unafraid to strike out on his own, no longer existed because the 67-year-old fallen mob boss followed the government's orders and stayed put. For the next several months, Sam laid low and tried to live a normal life. It seemed like he stayed away from the mafia, but little did he know, many of his former companions started to distrust him. Even if Sam had been aware of his image among the outfit, he wasn't focused on the past. June 1975 rolled around, and five days before he was set to testify at the hearing, Sam hosted an intimate dinner to ease his nerves. Sam's family and two old mob friends who hadn't turned on him, Chucky English and Butch Blasey, came to his house. The group ate and chatted for a few hours. Inside, Sam bid goodnight to his housekeepers, then went down to the basement to make himself another helping of sausage and peppers. That's when a knock came at the door. Sam opened it, greeted the visitor, and let them in. No one knows what happened inside Sam Giancana's house next. All we know is that by midnight, Sam's butler came downstairs and discovered him with a bullet wound to the back of the head, along with several in the mouth. Sam Giancana was dead. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Sam Giancana's story. We'll dive into the investigators' fight to obtain evidence and theories about who was responsible. 
For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Double Cross, the explosive inside story of the mobster who controlled America, extremely helpful to our research. It was written by the younger Sam Giancana, along with Chuck and Bettina Giancana. We also found Mafia Boss Sam Giancana, The Rise and Fall of a Chicago Mobster by Susan McNichol, extremely helpful. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Arohi Sheth, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Laith Walshlager, Cameron Nicod, Nazi Tarsha, and Ellie Schiff. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>